Oftentimes we allow Satan to steal it or to take it from us. First Thessalon- I'm sorry, First Thessalonians chapter 3, we'll read verses 1 through 10. Again, paying particular attention uh, to the word faith and how Paul was looking for it in this new church that he sent Timothy to visit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone. And sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and you know, for this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith. Lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. But now, when Timotheus came, unto, came from you unto us, and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. May God add a special blessing to the reading of his word. And let us just uh, pause for prayer prior to our study this afternoon. Father God, we again thank you for this day. We thank you for your graciousness and your goodness towards us, especially in the giving of Jesus Christ, your son to die on a cross for us, literally the death, burial, and resurrection which changed everything. The climax, the watershed, literally, that changed everything. We thank you for the opportunity we have to enjoy your grace through his expense. Father, we'd ask that today these things, if we take from your word, that you would use them to strengthen us, to encourage us, to make us more like yourself, for that's honestly what you've saved us for, was to be conformed to the image of your Son. Uh, Father, we would ask that today our teacher would be exclusively the Holy Spirit. We would ask that the Word of God would go out and not remain uh, in any way other than to be blessed and fulfilled as you would see it fit. We thank you, Father, for these that have come out today. We would ask that you would bless them, that you'd, uh, those that weren't able to come out as well, Father, that you'd hold them close to yourself for whatever reason, and that they would know that you are a God of gods, an awesome and mighty God. And Father, we'll ask for protection of your Word. We thank you for what's going to happen in advance already, knowing that we're here because we're honoring and, and wanting to uh, glorify you. And now, Father, we just look for your guidance. And these things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> well, last week we talked about something I think is extremely important, especially in the world we find ourselves living today, and that's living by faith, not by fear. And we looked at a number of examples, which we'll continue today. Um, in the sense of the importance and how easy it is for us to turn our eyes onto things other than our God in Jesus Christ. We looked at a number of them last week. Um, and maybe, maybe it would be good for us to just go back to our, our key verse that we looked at, John chapter 10 and verse 10, because it's good to know what the enemy is trying to do. <clears throat> John chapter 10 and verse 10 um, very succinctly tells us of... Uh, as, John, as Jesus is re- relaying to his uh, followers, his disciples, that from a, a shepherd's standpoint, and uh, just looking down in verse uh, 9 and 10, uh, we'll maybe start in verse 7, I'm sorry. Verse 7 will tie us in there perfectly. Then said Jesus unto them again, John chapter 10, verse 7, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. 
All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Watch verse 10. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. And I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. We see that literally the thief or in this picture, uh, we could certainly say that Satan is actively trying to wage war against the sheep. He's trying to steal, to destroy and to kill. And uh, honestly, the thing, our lifeline is faith. Um, how many of you say you have enough faith? No one's going to commit. Tony went for it. He went for it. He's got enough. Faith is an interesting thing, uh, uh, as we've said numerous times here, in the fact that if you cannot have fear and faith coexist at the same time. Um, you're really at, reacting by faith, and that is you're looking to Jesus Christ honestly. You're looking to God for answers, or you're fearful and you're absent of faith. It's very... Uh, and it's amazing how simple it is for us to literally go away. How many of you sometimes, again, don't raise your hands, it'll incriminate you, but how many of you uh, at night wake up and you sit there and you're stewing and you can't sleep? I think it's absolutely imperative quickly begin praising God because of the, you'll fall into fear, worry, and anxiety. Because they'll, and I'm just right, and then you can't sleep. And now I see some heads nodding, don't even raise your hands. Because, and by the way, it's, it's really something that is, uh, it plagues us all, quite honestly. But I know for myself that time between uh, 2.30 and 3 o'clock in the morning seems to be one that I'm, I'm awake. And uh, if I'm not careful to begin right away grabbing them my mind um, and, letting, and, and pr- making it pursue things that are of utmost value. And uh, it's, it's a, otherwise I find myself just rolling over and over and over again things that I usually can't do anything about. There is that saying that uh, who says worry doesn't, doesn't uh, work? Uh, 98% of what I worry about never happens. And that's obviously not why. It's just that the things we worry about usually don't take place anyway. But at any rate, we find the fact that faith would describe uh, our lifeline really literally to our God. Today I'd like to uh, ask, pose the question to you, uh, can I trust God to lead me? Can I trust God to lead me? And you probably very uh, quickly would say, well, of course. Well, interestingly enough, uh, George Barna did a survey, and uh, only 10% of church-going Christians made important life decisions based on God's Word and seeking His will. Uh, How many percent did I say? 10%. So in other words, the other 90% are really relying on their own wisdom, their own uh, foresight, or others, or whatever they perceive to be a feeling or an overarching principle outside of following God's will or praying towards Him. That, that's amazing to me, isn't it? 10%, uh, it's no wonder we're kind of messed up. Uh, I, I, want, I want to know, what does God think? And then in this last couple of weeks, we've had uh, our family, I ask that you'd continue to pray, we've uh, uh, technically would have uh, maybe enough pasture for, uh, right now technically, again, uh, probably about 30% of our cows. Um, we're not too far away from grass, even though it's been a very prolonged winter. It seems as such that spring is something that is in a far distant future. But uh, looking at my hay pile, it's essential that we do find grass at some point. <laughs> but however, I, I would not want to leave you just standing there. And the, over the last course of the last couple of weeks, a few of you would know that um, God is working. He's very actively working. And I'm, it's amazing how he is guiding and leading. And that's one of the things that when I do wake up in the middle of the night, is this, God, what is my next step? What do you want me to do next? Now, it's it's interesting for us to jump beyond that, go beyond and try to figure it all out. And how is it going to work out? 
right? You can raise your hands if you think that, because I think we all do that. We want to know beyond of what we see right here. I mean, even if we're trusting God, even if faith is very evident in our lives, we usually want to launch up and high and to see exactly what it is, how it's going to work out. That is really not faith. Faith is just being willing to take God's next step for your life. That's all I want to know, really. It really is. It's really, and by the way, that's my place of joy and peace and comfort is when I'm willing to take it that one step at a time. And he is actively working. So, but, uh, and by the way, I know I'm not alone. I know you're in this room and you all have decisions and, and, and things that are coming up in your life that how are you going to react? Are you going to react with fear or are you going to react with faith? And Satan wants to steal your faith. He wants to replace it with fear. But I found that interesting that only 10% of church-going Christians literally were trusting God's Word or His will to move forward. I'd like to take you to a passage of Scripture that may be very foreign to most of you. Uh, However, I I think it's very insightful how oftentimes unbelief uh, gets us in trouble. And it's not necessarily any way, it's a drift, if you will. Have you ever been on a, uh, uh, they call them a drift boat. And I'm not a guy that likes to be in the water. I like water about that deep, enough to irrigate with, and that's perfect. I nearly drowned twice when I was a youngster. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's definitely waged all the way over into my life. I have no need for swimming or anything else of deep water. I'm not sure I could even enjoy a cruise, quite honestly, because there's too much water underneath of me. But that being said, um, now, where did I go? I totally lost what I was going to say. Oh, a drift boat. There we go, coming back to that. I don't know of what value there, but to hold a passenger and keep them from drowning. I know nothing else about it. But it's amazing when you're on the water and left to itself with no motor, with no oars, with nothing. Guess what? You just drift. You drift, don't you? And especially in an ocean, some people will find themselves, I mean, outside of even knowing where they're at. That is a pretty good picture of what's happened to this man, which you may or may not know. But let's go to your Bibles. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 11. It was like a nobody that had, had just risen up out of the kingdom. And to back you up and to get some context, uh, there was a man that you know very well by the name of King David. And God had raised him up. He had appointed him. He had anointed him at the hands of Samuel, making him the king over Israel. Saul had, had, had literally, um, I'm going to say, just fallen apart. He'd, uh, he'd lost his way. And uh, David was the one to take his place. He was one that was described as a man after God's own heart. After David, and we'll be talking about David a little bit further, uh, going into Psalm chapter 51, but for a moment, let's just keep cruising on through. And David had a son. He had several, but the one that continued to take the throne and began to reign. And what was his name? Solomon. Solomon. And Solomon was very, very wise. He was extreme. God gifted him immensely with wealth, with knowledge, Wisdom. I mean, he was a brilliant, brilliant man. But there was something that happened in his life, and there was a bit of a drift as well. We're not going to talk about him today, but Solomon had a, a way that uh, he drifted, and that was through excess wives. And we're not talking about one or two. Uh, we're, we're told that he had 300 wives, and if you were a young Sunday school boy, that he described it as 900 porcupines. But we know better, it's concubines. But at any rate, that's a 1,000 women that literally took Solomon's heart and pulled it away. We find that he actually made temples for his... Now, in all fairness, it's amazing how society... We're thinking, 300 wives, what's wrong with this man, right? Not, not, nothing wrong with ladies now. This is not something to deal. But, right, Paul, 300 is excessive. Right, Ernie? Right. Please say, yeah, I need, I need I'm getting that look back there. What's going on here? What are you, what are you, you're driving yourself in the corner, so the front row is going to bail me out of this, right? But at any rate... 
the point of the matter is, is in that day and age, we have, let's put ourselves back to context for a moment. And if you were living in that day and age, something that was done that made good sense, it's amazing how sometimes faith is not based on good sense and doing the right thing. But in that day and age, good sense told you that to form peace treaties and alliances between other countries of which could be, uh, shall we say, uh, a bit tenacious in the sense of caustic and abrasive, the best was to go ahead and marry the daughter of the king of the neighboring nation and vice versa. Okay, So that kind of makes it all in the family and everyone gets along. That was very commonly done. Now, I'm just trying to think. I don't think there was 300 countries that he had to make peace with. But the point of the matter is that's how he started. That's really how it all got started. And at that point, guess what? The drift was on. And then it was just almost at whimsical kind of things. But exactly what God declared is exactly what happened. His heart was drifting away from God. His faith ultimately was being stolen by Satan, ultimately, if we were taken to that level. But something else happened. In this uh, tenure of, of Solomon's reign, God was displeased with Solomon's reaction to himself. And he had basically violated the things that God had laid out. If you do these things, the kingdom will go on forever. And out of the blue comes this man that you'll find in 1 Kings chapter 11, in verse 29. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 29. We're going to read some of these verses, and then we're going to skip over to the end of his career, his tenure, of which he served as a king for the king of Israel, the divided kingdom, for 22 years. And we're going to find, I'm, going to, I'm going to have a beginning and an ending, and it's so, what happened? That's what you're going to ask, and we're going to fill that in as well. First Kings chapter 11, verse 29, it goes on to say this. It came to pass at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him in the way, and he had clad himself in the new garment, and they too were alone in the field. And Ahijah caught the new garment that was on him and rent it or tore it into twelve pieces. He said to Jeroboam, Now, what do you know about Jeroboam? Just go back up to verse 26 for a moment. Uh, we should have probably done that. In verse 26, same chapter, it says that Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephrathite of Zeredah, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow woman, even he lifted up his hand against the king. Now, that's interesting. He's a nobody. He's a nobody. He's the son of a servant of Solomon. Okay? That's important. Now, let's go back to where I... Where I verse 32, and it's, he said this. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 31. He, Ahijah, a prophet of God, said to Jeroboam, take, these take the ten pieces, for thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I will rend or tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give ten tribes to thee. And he shall have one tribe for my servant David's sake and for Jerusalem's sake, the city which I have chosen out of all of the tribes of Israel, because that they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the children of Ammon, and have walked in my and have not walked in my ways, to do that which is right in my eyes and to keep my statutes and my judgments, as did David his father. Howbeit, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but will make him prince all the days of his life for David my servant's sake, whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it unto the even ten tribes. And unto his son will I give one tribe that David my servant may have a light always before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen me to put my name there. And I will take thee, and thou shalt reign according to all that thy soul desireth, and shalt be king over Israel." 
And it shall be, if thou wilt hearken unto all I command you, walk and wilt walk in my ways, and do that which is right in my sight, and to keep my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, that I will be with thee, and build thee a sure house, as I built for David, and will give Israel unto thee. Now, that is remarkable. I, I just want to, I want to say that this is like a nobody just walking down and all of a sudden in the, out of the middle of nowhere, Ahijah, the prophet, was, just, was given a message from God and he, said, he gives him this message. Now, what do you think Jeroboam's saying? Whoa, right? Right? But those are promises given now. This, these are promises that God has laid out for this man, Jeroboam. Now, it was interesting, too. I want, I want to be very careful to say he has been told why Solomon has been removed from his position. And that is why, because he literally chased off through his other wives, uh, other gods. He had failed to follow what God had asked him to do. Now, let's keep going. Verse 39, and I will for this afflict the seed of David, but not forever. Solomon sought, therefore, to kill Jeroboam. It's going good, isn't it? Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt unto Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. All right? So that's the beginning. That would be about as good a day as you could have. You are going, you've been promised, and and to to fill you in, essentially, uh, at this point, all of Israel is together. And in just one more tenure, as Solomon passes away, his son is whom? This is, this is Bible trivia. His son was Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, he comes on site, and he's this young pup, and he's really tough, and he's really macho. And he says, you guys just, well, let me see. I'm going to talk to my young guys. And, and the older, the older uh, uh, advisors told him, he said, you know what? If you really pay attention and you take care of your people and you talk to them nicely, they will surround you and you will be in good shape. They'll follow you. Uh, he said, let me talk to my other guys. And here's the young, the, 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 young, the young, I was going to say punks, but I shouldn't say that. The young guys, and they, oh, no, listen, listen. I'll tell you what you do. You put your foot down. You put your arm in the air, and you say this. I'll tell you what, you guys didn't even know what my father could do. And I'm here to tell you, I'm going to whip you guys into shape, and you thought he was tough? I'm another level. Just get in line and march to my orders. And that's what he did. He said, that's a great idea. Guess what happened? Just exactly what God said. Boop. Definite split. The only thing left was Judah. And the rest was Israel. And it's a brand new kingdom. And guess who's there? Just like God said, Jeroboam. He's the brand. Now think of that. He just walked. He doesn't even walk on the scene. God literally just puts in there and says, this is yours. As long as you follow my commandments, you do it my way. And the reason that you're getting this is because Solomon didn't. I mean, this is pretty basic stuff, isn't it? You could put it right on the, on the, on the board. Now, I want you to go, we're going to fast forward. He was king for 22 years of Israel, Jeroboam was. Let's go to chapter 14 and let's find out how it ended. We'll read portions of it. And then we're going to find out what went wrong. Oh, I gave that away, didn't I? I gave that away. Let's go to chapter 14. And let's see if I can find out. Um, We'll start at verse 1 to just lay the situation out. Um, It says... That at that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. Okay, this is actually toward the end of his reign. And his son is sick. Now watch verse 2. Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise, I pray thee, and disguise thyself, that thou be not known to be the wife of Jeroboam. And get thee to Shiloh. Behold, there is Ahijah. Who's he? Now, who is he? That's the one that told him what's going to happen, right? He said, you're going to be the king of Israel, the ten nation, the ten tribe nation. And he says, uh, disguise yourself and go to him, 
and to Ahijah the prophet, which told me that I should be king over all of his people. Take with thee ten loaves and cracknels. I do not know what a cracknel is, but that's okay. And a cruise of honey and go to him. He shall tell thee what shall become of the child. Jeroboam's wife did so and arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. But Ahijah could not see for his eyes were set by reason of his age. So you're thinking, well, why did she, why did she bother dressing up to be someone else? It gets better. Watch verse 5. God's a God. And the Lord said unto Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam cometh to ask a thing of thee for her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus shalt thou say unto her, for it shall be when she cometh in, that she shall feign herself to be another woman. She's dressed up as someone else. And it was so when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet, and she came in at the door, he said, Come in, thou wife of Jeroboam. Wife. <laughs> I just got to love this. She's, I'm, I'm, I'm guaranteeing you she put it all on. I mean, she was going to be somebody different. I mean, she's going to just get to the bottom. And he doesn't even see her, doesn't even crack the door. He hears her footsteps on the, on the I'm going to say the porch. I don't know if that's exactly right. And he says, Come on in, wife of Jeroboam. <laughs> now, that would shut you down, wouldn't it? Watch. Why feignest thou thyself to be another? For I am sent to thee with heavy tidings. And go and tell Jeroboam, verse 7, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, For as much as I exalted thee from among the people and made thee prince over my people Israel and tore the kingdom or rent the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to thee, and yet thou hast not been as my servant David who kept my commandments and who followed me with all of his heart and to do that only which was right in mine eyes. But hast done evil above all that were before me, for thou hast gone and made thee other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger, and hast cast me behind my back. Do you see what's going on? And it goes on to say, actually, she's given the bad news that as soon as she would take her son home, as soon as she would step in their home, that her son would die. There's other things to be said. Well, you could carry on, but the point of the matter is something dreadfully has happened. In the course of 22 years, this man that went from nothing to having a nation of which he was ruling is about to lose it all. In fact, it goes on to say that his entire lineage will be wiped out. What happened for that to take place? What was it that took place? Let's go back to uh, 1 Kings chapter 12. First Kings, just, it'll be right in the middle. That makes good sense since we went on either side of his reign. Let's start in, uh, in chapter 12. And now I've got to figure out where we want to be. Oh, let's start in about verse 25. Let's start there about verse 25. It talks about his reign. Now, one thing I would like... Well, that's okay. I think it'll describe it right here for us. If not, we'll take a moment and we'll describe what's going on. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in Mount Ephraim and dwelt therein and went out from thence and built Penuel. And Jeroboam, watch, I want you to mark this. I have actually underlined in my Bible because this is something when I do this, I'm in trouble. It says this, and Jeroboam said in his heart, mark that, mark that. Jeroboam said in his heart, well, I'm going to tell you something. When you talk to yourself, you can make a lot of bad decisions. You can make a lot of bad, <laughs> right? You really can. But let's keep moving. Let's find out what he says. Jeroboam said in his heart, now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. What do you mean? Didn't, didn't, didn't God just promise that it wouldn't? That's the difference between faith and fear. You see what I'm saying? What's happening right now is he's talking to himself. He's being fearful. You can see it right now. He's, he's painting a not very good picture. Watch, verse 27, he's going to tell us why. If this people from Israel go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Now, how much of that is truth? Absolutely zero. Now, what is he doing when he's talking to himself? 
He's making up stuff. Now, this is the I'm going I'm to jump ahead because I want to keep coming back to, if you remember nothing else about today, who would you be described? If I was going to ask you, who is described in the scripture as the father of faith? So you guys all answered the same. Have you heard Father Moses? Father David? No, you want Father Abraham. He is described for us as the father of faith. It's very interesting. And if you, when you're looking at his journey, shall we say, now was he perfect in faith? Not so much. Not so much. But I'll tell you what, he always returned and he came back to it. The father of faith, there's something that's very significant about that. But let, holding that in your mind, I was going to tell you something that just went, poof, right? oh, I know what it was. I'm coming right back around. If I circle this thing enough, I'll get it back. I'll get it back. One of the things that was important for Abraham, and it's important for you today, it's important for, jo for Jeroboam, it's important for anyone in any place at any time, and that is this. You need to stand on God's promises. That's where his strength comes from, not his commands. You can fulfill his commands when you respond by standing on his promises, the faith will, encourage, will, will strengthen you to be able to do his commands. You get, that out of, you get that out of context, and what happens, you'll say things like this when you fail, following through a command, oh, I'll try harder next time. Who have you just put the strength on in that, in that, in that statement? Ourselves. Ourselves. Exactly. exactly. But when you stand on his promises, we'll be looking at Abraham in a moment. When you stand on God's promises, that is what strengthens you to do his commandments. Now, right here we find where Jeroboam is, what is he doing? He is talking to himself, imagining things that God said would not happen. He had promised him, and this was not very, this was probably a few years prior to this, but not very much. He has taken a very key step to drifting. This is drifting. He is talking to himself. He's saying things that God said would not happen. But now the thing I want to point out, which it's not quite as clear there, why is he concerned? What does he just describe? What is this big, bad boogeyman that's just jumped out in the middle of Jeroboam in the middle of the night saying, I'm going to lose my whole kingdom. But by the way, he's, he's secured it. He's acquired it. All of those 10 tribes are following them actively. He's in, he's on, he's in charge on board. What's happening? What is he thinking about? Yeah, two or three times a year, right? And, and they, make this, they make this pilgrimage because that's where you go to worship. Okay? And guess what? Jerusalem is not in his kingdom. Aha! Aha! So now we've got to be clever, don't we? This is where faith and cleverness usually don't work together. If you think you're really smart, he's thinking he's really smart right now because he's going to come up with a plan. He's talking to himself. There's going to be a plan come out of this, but it's based upon illogical fear. So rather than having the... You know, by the way, if you would have put this on... Uh, World News, or would have put it on uh, How to Be a Great Leader, or uh, you, you know where I'm going. I'm, I'm failing to find the right article. But at any way, I'll tell you this. This would have made a lot of sense because I'm going to tell you something. Here's his advisors. You'll find if you follow down the wrong trail, you can find somebody that will encourage you to go down the wrong trail. Okay? Here he is. And he's got this problem. And he's thinking, if those people two or three times a year Start marching down to Jerusalem, right downtown Rehoboam's country. What do you think Mr. Rehoboam's going to be doing? Say, I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you for coming and, and, and being a, fulfilling the pilgrimage to Jerusalem and worshiping our God, our God. Right? And, and pretty soon, you, do you see where Jeroboam is? Oh, you can fall right into it, can't you? You can just fall right into that cliff. 
Oh, now how am I going to solve this problem? This is a huge problem. This sounds terrible. Now, what had God said? These ten tribes will be yours and your families forever if you follow me. And part of that was fulfilling the law that God had laid out, making the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, finishing the worship that they were intended and designed to do. I'll take care of the politics. But he didn't trust God, did he? Let's keep going. He comes up with a, a stupendous plan. Whereupon, verse 28, the king took counsel. See what I'm saying? You can find people to back up a stupid idea. Now, that's not there, is it? But anyway, it says the king took counsel. He made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Oh, my goodness. That one verse, his whole kingdom collapsed it collapsed he set the one in Bethel and in other words why why put them in one place I mean let's check our bit make a less traveled kind of a thing Dan and Bethel if you look at your map you'll find them they're somewhat distinctly removed and they sort of a central place so that if you're an Israelite and I'm talking the tribes of Israel you can go to either one of them probably equidistant oh what a plan that's like having a Walmart close to you that was way, way out of, out of context here. But you know what I'm saying. It's like strategically making it work for the people. Verse 30, and this thing became a sin. For the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. He made a house of high places, made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi and Jeroboam, ordained a feast in the, in the eighth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. But he offered upon the altar. So did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places, which he had made. Do you see this thing? It is just this, woo. It's a snowball effect, isn't it? Have you ever taken a... A little bit of snow, and you've had a big hill, and you've just you've got it going, and it's the right. It's got to be the right temperature. You can't do this. It's got to be the right temperature, and you roll it down, and that baby is big, isn't it? And it gets really going. That's what's going on in his life right now. He is so out of control. But I want you to watch in verse 33. What's told of us exactly taking us back to the same picture. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the fifteenth day of the eighth month, totally outside of God's law. Even in the month which he had, watch, watch this carefully. I had this marked in my Bible as well. Which he had devised of his own heart and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel. And he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. Did you see this? This whole thing. Now from chapter 11 where God promised all of these wonderful things for he and his family. And the dynasty that would, would be fulfilled if he just did what God told him to do. That's all he had to do. Just do what I say. And it's not a lot. I've taken you a nobody, made you a somebody. And if you'll continue to be a real buddy as long as you follow what I'm doing. And it just collapsed. Because why? He talked to himself. No faith. He was cast with fear. Common theme, isn't it? Common theme. Common. And did you see? Now, I want you to notice something, though. The drift was probably some sense sequential. It was, not, it was not all of a sudden, boom, I hate God. It's not like that. It's very interesting. It's just one smooth step after one smooth step after one smooth step. But did you see at the very end of his career? When his son was sick, who did he send? Why didn't he go? He knew it was over. He knew it was over. I'm convinced that God would have given many, many opportunities to say, what are you doing? Why did you do that? Don't do that. Stop that. I'll take care of you. I, I guarantee it. I'm, I'm absolutely positive of that. And it just collapsed. Lack of faith. 
He allowed the enemy to take his faith. Another example. Let's, uh, unbelief often dresses itself up in cleverness. Today, I'm afraid some of the decisions that are made politically or within our country at a high level of, uh, at a high level, as such many times, is based upon logic and what we see rather than doing the right thing. Once again, we see that in this man's life. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, a verse that's probably very familiar to many of you. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Matthew 6, verse 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things shall be added unto you, Jeroboam. And any one of us, we could put our name in behind there. Seek it first. And the rest of it will be taken care of. But it's amazing how sometimes we focus on what circumstances seem to dictate rather than the faithfulness of God as being bigger than any mountain. I mean, as, as, as Jeroboam was looking at this problem, there was no God. He didn't see God in any of it. He just saw a massive problem. And I'm trying to tell you what, when faith is there, God is above and beyond and he is bigger than any mountain. I love that song. There's a little, remember that one we used to sing once in a while? Bigger than any mountain. That's a cool thing because that's exactly what God is, especially when you take him uh, at his word. Let's go to Luke chapter 1. Let's change the scene. I'm going to set the stage for a different scenario. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We're going to do a fair amount of just, uh, I'm going to just tell you about the story. Uh, You you know that Jesus Christ came. Uh, Mary was his virgin mother. And it was predicted. Actually, you go back in the Old Testament and you watch those, those predictions, those prophecies that were laid out there. But there was also someone told about that was going to be a forerunner. There was going to be someone that was going to literally uh, pave the way for Jesus Christ. And his name was John the Baptist. John the Baptist. And uh, he was an interesting fellow. But it was also an interesting situation. And it reminds me very much his birth on the same order of Abram and Sarah. Why? Why do I say that? Anybody know the story about uh, Zechariah and, uh, and Elizabeth being John's? I, I, sorry, I didn't mention that to you. John had parents, and they were Zechariah and they were Elizabeth, a mom and a dad. Imagine that. And what was their situation? They were very old. Yeah, that's right. She was beyond the age of childbearing, and she had no children in the time that she could bear children, at least the perceived time. Okay, so, so let's make, the, make sure we understand this. She is outside of the childbearing years, which she didn't raise any, didn't have any. And now we're in the old age, non-childbearing age, plus we were barren before. That's kind of like a double, how are we going to get through that? Zechariah, her husband, is part of the tribe of Levi, and his deal was to serve in the temple. And he did a, he did a, you can just get a sense of a magnificent job. But it seems as such from the passage in Luke chapter 1, and, and Luke takes a great deal of time to develop this, this whole thing about uh, Zechariah and, and Elizabeth, is that Zechariah and his wife had prayed for a son, had prayed for a child, and prayed and prayed some more, and then prayed some more after that, after they prayed some more beyond the fact they were praying more and more beyond, you, you get where I'm going. And it just seemed like it just fall on deaf ears. Nothing happened. Does that sound like Abram and Sarah? A lot like it, doesn't it? I mean, how would it feel like to have been, I'm, I'm just going to, let's go back to Abram and Sarah for just a minute. Now, we know that Abram, when Isaac was born, was 100. And that just blows my mind. <laughs> 
I'm 57, and I just can't imagine having the first child at 100. I would just die. <laughs> it would be so over the top, right? But that's okay. But let's just say he's 95. Let's go back five years before any of this took place. And he's still, he's still, still clinging to the promise that God had said, if you get out of that land and you go where I show you, this is what, let's go to, let's go again to Genesis 12, one of my favorite passages, because this is literally what started Abram's walk, literally his walk with God, his, the faith that he could be called the father of. Genesis, let's go to chapter 12, and there's something he's asked to do, but it's based on promises that God had given to him. Uh, Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, The Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. Now, it takes up one verse, and it is very complicated. Very, very complicated. If you're going to do the, do the mileage map, by the way, did, did God send him by letter? Give him, this is the map of where you're going to be going. You just follow the proposed route. Get in your, uh, your Impala, and then you'll have a... <laughs> I'm, really, I'm really going out there now. <laughs> Maybe it's a Buick River area. I don't know, but no, 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 it wasn't. It was a whole lot of just take your feet and get on moving, because I'm going to show you where you're going to go. But it's more complicated than that. Didn't have a clue where he was going. Did not have a clue. It just said, get ready. To get ready to leave, you're going to go somewhere that I'm going to show you. Okay. Now, the other thing is, is guess what? He had been part of that culture in that neighborhood where he lived for a very long period of time. So that meant he's going to leave his friends. He's going to leave his family. He's going to leave all of the things that he's used to doing. He's going to go, just go, just go. No maps, no, no routes, no series, no iPhones, no turn right. I'm sorry, I don't have the female voice because only females can direct a GPS on Siri, right? It's the only way because they're the only ones that are right. Because men go to gas stations and ask questions after they've circled the block 18 times. The wife finally says, honey, we're lost. Okay. So you go, right? I'm sorry. It's true, you, right? You can say yes, Alice. You absolutely can. But, but the point is, is no maps, nothing there. I'll just take you to a place. But what does he have to do? He just has to follow. He has to trust he has to be in faith. Now watch. God doesn't stop there. He says, this is what I want you to do. This is what I'm going to do for you. Verse 2. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless you. I will curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Whoa. I don't know if you can even capture that. I mean, we just read in two verses, and it's huge. And I love what he did in the next verse. Just read it. What does it say? Just read it to me. And he departed. <laughs> He's good. He's all on the promises, right? It made it simple for him. I don't know. I would have been like, he said, you know what? I'll get back to you on that. Let's have a family meeting. What do you think, Sarah? Do you think we can really leave this place? I mean, your family's here. My family's here. I mean, you know, we, this is what we do. I know our bank's here. All of the stuff we do, you know, our newspaper, we read everything. I mean, everything is here. That's going to be really, really like a jolt our system when we just leave. And by the way, do you know where we're going? Neither do I. He didn't say. We're just going to leave. And actually, if you go ahead and check where they ended up, it was 900 miles now, 900 miles today is like I'm lapping the globe a couple of times, right? Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. And he didn't get it there fast. That is called faith. That is called faith. That is called faith. 
just went, just took right off, didn't he? It was just like he knew, this is what I've got to do. It's amazing, isn't it? That's right. That's right. That's another thing. Oh, my goodness. Why would, see, see, that's really, that's impressive to me. That's impressive because that's why he's called the father of faith. He's got more reasons not to do that than I could list. I could stand here the rest of this day telling you reasons that he shouldn't have went logically, intellectually, and making sense, right? That's not what God is. Farming, that was probably the best country. Where he was at, absolutely. Yeah, he, was, he, was, he was in a perfect place to be doing whatever he's doing, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a wonderful place. I was, I was going to try to pick a place, but I'm not going to try to do that because no matter what, I'll offend. it was not North Dakota where he lived. <laughs> I mean, you just put it that way. Okay? And I can say that because I used to live there. It is. It was the, it was the breadbasket of the world. It was the perfect place to hang out. That's why his family probably was there for generations on generations. But God said, no, that's not what I want. I want you to go there. And I don't know where there is yet, but I'll show you when you get there. Oh, my goodness, right? And then he says things that are really pretty much out there. I'm going to make a great nation of you. Nation? We, we don't have a kid. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm sorry. I just got to lay it out there. It's just that's what he said, right? Just, and you know what? Again, and he departed. He's ready to go. Let's go. That's faith. I love that. That's what makes him the father of faith. Now, now you say, how did you just disappear from Zechariah and Elizabeth? Very carefully, we got over to Abram too quickly. But let's go back for a moment as I continue to tell you the story in Luke chapter 1. Flip back over there. Um, Zechariah had been praying. In fact, let's see if we can pick it up. I'm going to let the scripture speak for itself. Let's go to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And let's see if we can dial into this without reading the whole chapter. But uh, Luke chapter 1. Well, let's just, let's just start in verse 5. There we go. That'll work good for us. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. It was in the days of Herod, the king of, Ju- of, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both now, in other words, it's like adding on to that, now well stricken in years, it came to pass that while she executed the priest's office before God, I'm sorry, that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his, of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Words, he's, on, he's on a, uh, I'm going to just say it this way, his work was at the temple, and now this is a special thing for him to be able to do to offer, to burn incense in the temple. It would have been taken a very, very high level of, uh, what do you want to say, uh, Importance, And he was, he was doing this, I'm sure, with a great deal of worshipfulness. In verse 9, according to the custom of the... I'm sorry, verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of the incense. So they're outside praying, and he's doing this time of incense. It's a very, a very significant time. And there appeared unto him, verse 11, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. Now, by the way, if you'd see an angel, a good chance you'd probably take the same result. Especially when you're very keyed in, you, you know, you've got, you, you're burning incense, and, and all of a sudden, there's an angel, and you're like, whoa, what is going on? In fact, I would imagine even this whole episode of the significance of this, you would be on a heightened level. I mean, you would be, you should use deodorant that morning, because I'm going to tell you, you're going to be sweating. You're gonna, it's it's going to be serious, right? And all of a sudden, boom, here's this angel. 
You would do the same thing. Don't, don't say you wouldn't. He's trembling. He's fearful, actually. And it says this, verse 13. The angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. Did you see that? It's not like, it's not like those prayers that you, that you... I was going to write them on a piece of paper. You, you, can, you can write your prayers, but say them to God. He doesn't lose them. God doesn't lose your prayers. Isn't that cool? That's really cool. I'm really glad that God doesn't lose my prayers. It says, your prayers have been heard. Now, what, listen, now, watch, watch, watch this now. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. Now he's really nervous and messed up, right? And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him in spirit and, and power of Elijah, and turn the hearts of the fathers to children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He's going to be this forerunner. This would be someone that Zechariah would have known from prophecy. What do you think? Is, his mouth right now is... He can't even talk, but it's going to get worse because he doesn't believe it. He says, verse 18, he said unto the angel, uh, <laughs> pretty much, that is the paraphrase of what it says in the King James, whereby shall I know this? He's like, right. What? What are you talking about? And in fact, it says, I'm an old man and my wife is well stricken in years. In other words, what? You're acting upon what you see. You see? That's how we live life. That's how we live life. Like in, in 20 years ago, maybe 10 years ago, maybe five years ago, somebody told me that on the 4th, 5th of May, that I would have enough grass for 30% of my cows, and it's a significant number of cows, I would be freaking out. Because why? Because I see what I see. It's faith that takes us beyond what we see. There may be a financial thing that is in your life that is looming, it is monstrous, out of control, and it becomes a mountain of itself. How in the world? You don't need to know. Where is your faith? Where is your trust? That's what it's about. You may have a medical condition. You may have something that's just looming, that's huge, it's a monster, and you don't know how to... You don't have to know what is the next step for me to react to, God. What do you want me to do next? You see, it's so, it's so easy. I can slip right into Zacharias' shoes. I'm in the temple and I'm dirty incense. First of all, I see his angel. I'm like, whoa, what is that? And then he tells me stuff like that. And I'm too old and she's too old and you're going to have a son and he's going to do this and he's going to be the forerunner. He's going to be like this forerunner of Jesus Christ. And I'm like, what is going on? Let's keep going. You must be dreaming. Yeah, exactly. Let's keep going. Behold, uh, let's see. Verse 19. So he says, I'm too old, and my wife is old too. And how am I going to know this? What are you going to show me? And the angel answered, said unto him, watch this now. I am Gabriel, that stand in the presence of God, and am sent to speak unto you, and to show thee these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb, or not able to speak, until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. And the people waited for Zacharias, and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. And they're worried about him. The people are worried about him. They're wondering where he's at. What's taking so long? And when he came out, he could not speak unto them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned unto them and remained speechless. It came to pass that as soon as the days of administration was accomplished, he departed to his own house. Now think of that for a moment. He couldn't get on his cell phone that night. Well, no, he couldn't talk anyway. But he could have texted, right? And he could, wouldn't you have Zacharias wanted to have texted Elizabeth? 
you won't believe this, what I saw today. He said, we're going to have a son. And I can't tell you about it because I didn't believe it. <laughs> so just think of that for a moment now. He's actually away from her, which would be his time of administration, which is called. He can't talk to her. He can't talk to anybody. Now watch this. He departed to his own house. After those days, verse 24, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. She is one happy lady. It is great. Now, it even gets better. If we were going to take the rest of our session and talk about the rest of this chapter, you'll find we're actually Mary, now who is convinced, who conceived by the Holy Spirit. She comes to Elizabeth, and while Elizabeth, who's about five months pregnant, John, the son she doesn't even know yet, Leaps in her womb when Mary walks in, the, walks in the room. And I'm telling you, that was the relationship that John the Baptist and Jesus had. He was that forerunner. Now think of that. Isn't that amazing? Again, it's amazing to me. It, it's so easy for us to slip into any one of those folks' sandals and say, you know what? I would have done the same thing. I would have done the same thing. I wouldn't have believed. It's, it's outrageous. Well, I'm just going to tell you, I, I don't, I'm gonna, this, this would get me really in trouble, so I'm not going to, but I'm going to let you imagine a moment. But let's just say that you saw... Uh, a man that's uh, 100 years old and his wife's 90. Let's go back to Abram and Sarah. Walking downtown Sheridan. Haven't had a child. And he comes up to you. Hey! God came to me and he said, you know what? We're going to have a son next year. <laughs> you need some help. <laughs> right? Right? Are you, do you see what I'm saying? And, and this is the even more miraculous, the more magnificent acts of faith is when Abram literally believes those kind of things. How about when he took, and again, his faith walk, this is another thing that's good for us today. Uh, I don't even know where we're going to finish, but there's, there's something that's really important, is you just don't wake up with this. You just don't wake up and have all of this faith. This is, an inner, this is an, a thing that continues to progress as time goes on. I can see in my own life, my walk, from where I started and where I am today, and by the way, I'm miles of where God probably wants me. He's not done with me. He's, he's still working in me. There's a great verse about it. We'll leave you with that today. But the, the point of the matter is this. Abram did not really... Now, he started the, chip, the trip, and God knew that he would. He gave him only as much as he could handle. But what if he would have tried the trick of sacrificing Isaac earlier in his life? That, to me, is amazing. That's, that is the most amazing place of faith from a human that I can think of. That is the most amazing that I can even think of. Let's play that out for just a moment. Because Abram truly does deserve to be called the father of faith. Now, he had it falling away. He went and followed God, and they get where they're going to go, and then he has a, there's a bad drought, a really bad drought. He doesn't talk to God then either, and he just heads up down in Egypt. Gets himself in a lot of trouble. I don't even want to talk about that. Comes home. And ultimately, you know the story we've been talking about all day. 25 years later, all of a sudden, he does have his son Isaac. He grows up. He's probably, I'm going to say, middle teenager. I can't prove that, but I'm going to just from the, the time and course, because it was, it was said that Isaac literally, he was packing the wood to go up this mountain. It's a three-day journey, Mount Moriah. And God says, he says, comes to Abraham, and he says, you know what? I want you to take your son and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. Did I miss something here? You don't, you don't find him saying anything. In fact, early, the, if you wrote the scripture, early the next morning, early the next morning, he gathers up his servants, and they go a three-day journey to Mount Moriah. What do you think those three days were like? Ooh. 
Don't see anything about it. Didn't have to have a conference. Didn't have to talk to his counselors to see if that was a good idea. What do you think Jeroboam would have done right now? That's a stupid idea. How am I going to have? How am I going to be the father of a great nation if I'm going to kill my son? That's why we would, he would use those terms too. Now that's not the. Abraham said nothing of that. Now at the bottom of Mount Moriah, he takes his son and he has the wood. And now his son is starting to wonder. I'm sure Isaac. Hmm. And this isn't the first time. It couldn't be because he says, to da- he says Dad, hey, Dad, uh, we got the fire and we got the, we got the wood. Don't see the sacrifice. Oh, my goodness sakes. <sighs> what does Abraham say right now? That's exactly what he said. He said, son, God will provide. That, is, that has made such an impact on me over the last year especially. God will provide. And you know what? It was good enough for his son, wasn't it? It was good enough. And they just went on the way. Now, it's getting serious, I'm sure, if you're Isaac, um, because when they get to the place, they set up this altar. Isaac becomes tied down to the wood, and he's ready to slay him. And, and you know, we, we, we as, as human fathers or parents just cringe at this. This is, this is so much over... The, but you know what? It is the ultimate test of faith because literally Abraham was beyond what was happening to his son right there. Didn't even matter to him because he was clinging to the promise that God said that through that son would be a nation. He really believed... In fact, we could go to Hebrews and find that. That he literally believed that God would raise him from the dead. But Abraham was willing to... to Oh, I missed the word. Abraham was willing to dwell on the promises of God to allow him to have the strength to fulfill commandments. That, I want that. I just want, if you capture anything today, that's the key to your walk, your journey in life. Stand on the promises of God. They will strengthen you to fulfill his commandments. If you try to do it the other way, to, in other words, I'm going to try hard to do God's commandments so that I can receive his promise. You've missed it. You have totally 100% missed it. You have no strength in yourself to be saved or to fulfill commandments ultimately, and then the promises are not yours because those are received through Jesus Christ, through the grace that was fulfilled in his perfect sacrifice. Do you see it? It's huge. That's how faith is born. That's how faith is born. Wow, what a journey, huh? I don't even know where to take you next. Um... Man, there's so much stuff we could do, right? Tony's with me. He said, yeah, that's good. So let's, uh, let's talk about the fact, I think it's a time for us, just go to Ephesians. Let's go to Ephesians for a moment. Ephesians chapter 3, because this is God's work. This really, truly is God's work. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, gives us a very good picture of this whole thing. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For by grace are you saved. Grace. That you have no, it's unmerited favor. There's nothing you could have done to have earned that. By grace you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. Even the faith is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in. You see, do you see what I'm saying? That literally the grace that you receive through faith is ultimately the promises of faith, what allows you to, to, to be everything that God wants you to be. You can't get that out of context. Or out of order, I should say. Let me say that. Out of order. Because if you do it out of order, then you've missed it all. 
You've missed it. But let's go to Ephesians chapter 3 for a moment and verse 20. I want you to see the fact that this is an internal working. We see everything as external, or most of us, we, no, I'm in the wrong, oh, I'm in chapter 5. That won't work out. You just stay in chapter 3 right where you're at, and I'm going to come back to you. Ephesians chapter 3, and let's look at verse 20. Now, there's parts of this that just really we love. We just tie on it. We're excited about it. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. This is something that you just want to get excited about because it starts off this way. Now, unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, and you say, that's what I'm, lay it on me. That's what I want. That's what I'm talking about. Just about got you excited, but not quite. Okay? Yeah, amen. I got it. You're coming. But let's watch this. How? According to the power that worketh in us. In us. It's an, etern- it's an internal thing. God is working in us to accomplish those things. It's not something that we're accomplishing. It's within us. It's within us. Let's take that to another level. Let's go back to Psalm chapter 51. I said we would do this. How are we doing for time? Oh, not bad at all. It's not even dark yet. Um, (laughs) That wasn't very smart, was it? Psalms chapter 51. Now, this is probably the psalm that David would have been in the most distress as he would have written. This psalm was written probably a year after his sin uh, with Bathsheba. It was one of those... Spring nights. In fact, the, the scripture tells us it was the time of the year that the kings went out to do battle. But he didn't. He sent, who was his right hand man? Joab. Joab the general, right? And uh, he sent him out. He wasn't doing what he's supposed to do. That's another way. You want to get in trouble? Another one way I've talked about is getting up in the middle of the night and not presenting your time to God immediately and not praising him, getting your mind right. The other way is to just like not go do the things you're supposed to do and you're in the wrong places. So he wakes up in the middle of the night. He gets up and he walks around and lo and behold, he sees Bathsheba. And he being king can do anything he wants. And we all know what happened. But it got worse. Not only is this woman that's not his wife becomes pregnant. He figures out a way to literally, as in New York, they would say, make a hit. He has someone else literally kill her husband. Whoa. David, David, David. Right? And we were there for him. I mean, and everybody those things were one mistake. I'm not saying on this, even on this level, but if you like made one mistake, I'll get through the, wait till the, and it, it just, ooh, 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 We're back to that snowball, aren't we? Exactly, Alice just pointed out. I mean, he's on a bad snowball. This thing is gross. And guess what? He just shuts it down. He tries to just shut it out. For a year, nothing happens. I'm talking nothing happens except literally his bones ache because God is not with him. No more songs. The Psalms, you know, the ones that just, just, have you ever been around somebody, that, a musician that can just, I mean, stuff just flows. I mean, it's just weird. They can write stuff. They can sing stuff. They can, isn't that amazing? And you know what? David just went blank, blank. What do you think he, he knew? He knew. And then, you know, the little story that Nathan, the prophet, came to him and said, David, David, I want to tell you a little story. There's a really poor man. He had just one little ewe lamb, and it was part of the family. And then there was a rich guy came over and took it to feed his party. David's incensed. He's, he's just livid. He wants to just take this guy's head off. 
Where is he at? I'm going to make him pay. He's, that's it. We're done here. And how about what would have that been? You're that man. You, David, are that man. And he wilted into a puddle. And he wrote this psalm. I want you to see something. We're going to start at the beginning of it, but there's a couple of things in the middle of it. I want you to see how he really gets it. Psalm chapter 51. Let's start now in verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. And against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. He, he, he's, he's literally, he's laying it out there. God, wash me. But I want you to go down and there's things that's in the sense of, of what he's asking him to do in the internal parts of who he is. Let's turn to verse 10, the same chapter, chapter 51, and he asks him to do something that only God could do. He says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Now, I love that song. That, see, when I just say that, and that, that song is just rumbling in my mind, right? I mean, it's just going, that little praise song, you know, it's just boom, it's going constantly for good reason. That word create that you see here, it is exactly the same Hebrew word that is used in Genesis 1.1. And in the beginning, God created. Now, how did God create everything that you know about and beyond, what you don't even know about? The universe beyond and the wildest fathomable imagination of what it all is. When he created, what was that? He took nothing and created something. That is exactly what David is asking God to do right here. I got nothing to offer you. I, I failed miserably. I have nothing to give to you. Create in me a clean Isn't that good? Isn't that good? That's the riches and the depending part being on God himself. He wanted God to start over. He follows that up with the next line, and renew a right spirit within me. Maybe in some of your versions you may have steadfast or maybe even loyal spirit, meaning a firm, to be strong, to be immovable that's one of the things he's literally praying for is to, to know. He knows he's forgiven. He's asking. He knows God has forgiven him. But he's actually wanting to be able to have that steadfast spirit, that endurance to be able to resist temptation. Not just one day and have these dips. A law. And he knows where that comes from. It's from God. It comes from God. Renew that steadfast spirit within me. And then we find out in verse 12, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit, as in the King James, or a willing spirit. He wants him to give him a willingness to do whatever God, whatever God asks. Isn't that a great prayer? That is a great prayer. God, I want to do whatever it is you want me to do. I say that prayer a lot of times every day. I want him, I want it. God, you're, just give me the right frame of mind, the right spirit, the right... I want, I want to do what you want me to do. And then that's a way to stay fresh and clean, isn't it? It's a wonderful way to be. Not because I'm doing it. Literally, do you see what David, that's what he's, in the middle of this chapter, of, of chapter 51, which is the most intense, the most, quote, sorrowful, and yet the most rejoicing, energetic psalm that he ever wrote because of what he's seen, what God has to do the work. Do you see, do you see get, let, get me out of the way, God. You take care of business. You work on the inside. You take care of me. 
You do what you need to do to make it right. And literally, if you took those three things, uh, the fact of creating a clean heart, renewing a steadfast spirit, and a willing a steadfast spirit within me and a willingness to do your will. Literally, you could put a caption on. They said, Lord, keep me strong. Lord, keep me strong. Powerful. I want you to see the joy of my salvation. Let's go to John for a moment. John chapter 4, verse 34. John 4, 34. And we're going to start winding things down. You were starting to wonder, I know, but just stay with me. We'll be okay. John 4 and verse 34. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says this. We're talking about eating. Eating meat or food. In verse 32, he says, He said unto them, um, well, act, verse 31, let's go. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. In other words, hey, hey, Jesus, you need to eat. You know, he was one of those guys. You've ever been so passionate about what you're doing, you just forgot about eating? Who is that, Who is that guy? Help me out here, because I, I just popped into my mind, but I don't remember his name. He was a, he was a composer, and he wrote, oh, the, maybe it's the Messiah. I might be wrong. Help me. You remember that? I mean, it's Handel. Was this the guy that he literally was locked in his little room? I mean, it was like 20 days. And they kept poking food at him. He never ate anything because he was so in the spirit, so passionate about what he was doing. Isn't that, that's absolutely true, isn't it? You show me somebody that's passionate about their work, and I'm going to see something's going to be changed for the good here. I always want to know when someone's involved in a career, are you passionate? Do you have that fire, that energy? That, that's what makes it happen. Just look at this now. I want you to see this. Because the disciples said, Jesus, Jesus, knock it. You've got, you got to eat something. You're, you, I, we know because we're hungry. And you, have to, you have to eat. Watch what he says. He says this. But he said unto them, verse 32, I have meat or food to eat that you do not know of. His disciples said one to another, um, Did you bring him something to eat? I didn't. Did you bring him something to eat? Who brought him something to eat? And he, this is going on. And he says this in verse 34. My meat or my food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Isn't that perfect? Is that, do you see the joy in that? Show me somebody that's passionate about what they're doing, and I can show you someone that is full of joy as well because that's what makes them turn. That's what makes them burn. That's the thing that brings it to them. Jesus is saying, my food is to really do my Father's will. And that's literally what David is saying back in Psalm chapter 51. Reach the joy of your salvation. Turn with me to John chapter 5, verse 30. One more way to say it. John chapter 5 and verse 30. <clears throat> Speaking about doing the Father's will. This follows up what David was asking. John chapter 5, verse 30. I, again, Jesus' words. I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father with ha- which hath sent me. Oh, a powerful, powerful stuff. Um, I think I've got, there's just a lot of things, a lot of thoughts yet, but we need to kind of shut down. One of the things that has been said, I don't know if I can do a good job of, of translating this or bringing it to its fullest form, but when we think about faith, um, in fact, maybe, maybe we need to go to one in Hebrews maybe. Let's go to Hebrews for a moment. This will, I think this will make it better, make it more alive. Hebrews chapter 11, let's do this. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 27. Verse 27. 
This is speaking of Moses. This is the, 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 the hall of faith or the chapter of faith, Hebrews chapter 11. So we're digging in and looking at Moses' life. I'm going to just start in verse 24. There we go. But I want you to particularly pay attention to verse 27. Here we go. Verse 24, Hebrews chapter 11 says this. By faith, Moses... Oh, by the way, before you do that, let's go back and read the only way to please God. Did you know there's only one way to please God? There's only one way to do it. And we find that in verse 6, don't we? I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says this. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, that being God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, that he is rewarded of them that diligently seek him. No faith, no pleasing God. Now, back to verse 24, same chapter. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Now, in society, that would have called been stupid, right? Because you're like, number, you're like the Pharaoh's kid. You're like his son, the one next in line to be the Pharaoh over Egypt. They just pay attention, son. No, I'm an Israelite. Well, say you're not. It's okay. No, I'm an Israelite. And I would rather suffer with my Israelites than to be an Egyptian. Oh, how stupid can you get, right? That's called faith. In fact, let's keep watching. Watch it develop. Here we go. Verse 27. By faith he forsook Egypt. He left, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured. Watch, 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 watch. As seeing him who is invisible. Now, that's an oxymoron if I've ever heard of one, right? Seeing what's invisible. What? Right? What is that really saying? How do you see something that's invisible? By faith. That's the word. By faith, you see what is invisible. Oh, that makes sense. That's why Moses reacted the way he did. That's why Abraham reacted the way he did. It's faith. Now, this is where I'm going to try to build this in. Hopefully it works. How many of you have a, this is like old school, but someone have like a, a radio, transistor radio? At home, in a shelf, in a, in a closet. Yeah, somewhere, never to be used again. So just work with me. If you take that, I, I remember one that my, my, my folks had. Remember that little yellow one? It was kind of a, well, it was yellow once upon a time, but it turned and faded. And it had that. And it sat always on the kitchen table. And when you want to get the weather, this is back in North Dakota, because you want to know what the weather was in North Dakota a lot. And, you, and it had that dial on the side. Remember it? Mom, you remember it? Okay. And you turn it on, and guess what? Boom. Something was happening. Now, I remember when I was a little kid, I was trying to look inside to see who was in there. <laughs> right? Now, if you listen to a music channel, is it, what are the guitars and the drums and the, and the, and the, and the phone, are the, are the horns, are they inside that box? No. But you hear it. Does that mean I, it's not real? If I, yeah, you know, no, Larry. That, just because you hear it doesn't mean it's real. Because, do, do you see where I'm going with this? You, 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 you do. Faith is very much like that transistor radio. The music didn't come from the radio. The radio transmitted the music from a stronger source. That's what faith is. Isn't that something? And that's what we're, don't ever let Satan take your faith. Don't let him steal or diminish or allow your faith to become dormant. Don't drift away. Just think of Jeroboam. I'm, I'm, I'm sure at the end of his career, his, his reign of 22 years, he must have thought, oh, why did I do that? Right? Don't talk to yourself. Don't talk to yourself. <laughs> or if you do talk to yourself, talk to somebody else about what you talk to yourself about. Right? 
<laughs> At any rate. Okay. I'm going to try to take up. Sometimes the other part of it is that we talked a little bit of endurance uh, and enduring faith. That's what David was asking, asking for, a steadfast faith. How many of you, now this is, I just read this today, so I'm not feeling that I would, I would have known under a test, but it's okay. I like to, I like to quiz you guys. Um, a lot of times the Bible has talked about the sense of getting rid of the impurities out of metals, different kind of metals. Uh, and a lot of times it's the silver, the dross, the impurities of which it has within itself. Now, have any of you ever went to a silver mine? I haven't either, but I've, you know, I've read about them, seen some pictures. Um, now, let's, let's, let's take that side of it, just thinking about that's not, a, well, no, let me start on the other side. How many of you went in to get a fine piece of jewelry or a really, really nice set of silverware? I'm, I'm not talking the stuff they call silverware in Walmart. I'm talking about the real stuff. We don't normally go there either. Don't worry about it. I'm not trying to ask if you're there. But you follow what I'm saying? You would be in a place that's very distinguished, very clean, very neat, very polished, and very expensive. Are you with me? Now, let's go ahead and let's, let's take that silver now, and let's go all the way back when it became silver. Or we're mining the silver. I went too far back. Okay. How clean is that? Oh, my goodness. It's a dirty place, isn't it? There's men, I'm sure there's many men and women that have died from all of the different pollutionary effects of being in that condition, right? So how do you get from that to this? You've got to get rid of the impurities. How's the only way that you can do that? You've got to heat it. Heat it. How many enjoy being in the heat? I mean, the heat where things are starting to peel off, the dross and such. You know, I know in my own life, those times are trials and difficulties, right? That's when the heat is being turned up. And almost always, I can say, after the fact. Now, I'm never really very nice and complimentary when I'm in the heat chamber, right? But after the fact, I can turn around and say, you know what? That was good for me. I got rid of some things that I needed to get rid of. I, I'm, I'm saying that rat, God got rid of some things that I was hanging on to that didn't need to be there. But the only way it could happen was to heat me up, get enough. Do you know, where, do you know what temperature silver has to be? This was the test. For it to literally melt, it's higher than I thought it was. Anybody know? Take a guess. 240. 240, wrong answer. 1500. 1500. And is that in Fahrenheit or Celsius? <laughs> it's probably, I did not figure it out. In Celsius, it's 960.5 degrees Celsius. That is really hot. That is really hot. But that's the only way that you can skim off. In fact, the scripture speaks of it in Isaiah. I don't have time to look at it. That you can skim off the impurities. And that's how you get from in the dirt to in the polish. And that's what God's doing. And he's promised. This is another promise. That's one of my homework for you this week. Take your Bible. Dig in and find promises. Now, don't find promises that aren't yours. But I'm going to start you on the way. One of them is in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and is there's no, there is therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. That's a wonderful promise. That's a wonderful promise. There's another one that he promises to those that are in Christ Jesus. Let's go to Philippians chapter 1. This is what we're going to, maybe not going to quit here, but one more, maybe. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Let's go to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. You need to know this one. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And if you do, it's great to review. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 tells us this very, very clearly. Watch this now. Being confident. I love it when Paul says being confident. You can count on this. This is real stuff. Being confident of this very thing, 
that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I I can tell you what, I'm a work in progress, and if you're in Jesus Christ, you're a work in progress, and he's not going to quit on you. He's not going to give up. Oh, man, I have had enough of that, Larry. I'm telling you what, I have way too much energy. I'm just, he's done. No. If you've trusted Christ as Savior, you know what? He's going to complete that work until it's finished. Isn't that great? You know, we talk about, you know, the hard part's not starting a job. Finishing is the real deal. I can't tell you how many projects I've started, but the ones I've finished are the ones that have made it worthwhile, isn't it? It really is. I want to talk you one more verse, and then we're going to have our time of communion. Let's go to um, 2 Peter. 2 Peter. Uh, I, I think I just told a little fib, because we're going to have to do one more after this one, and then I, I promise. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. Now, Peter is that guy that was kind of the, he was kind of a loud mouth. He was uh, just boisterous, rambunctious, would not really be the one that you'd trust with a lot of theology as such. He was a motor mouth. But look at this as he wrote this in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. He says this, we'll start in verse 3. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. That is exactly what I've wanted to try to tell you all day long, is when you stand on the promises, the strength of those is what keeps you on course. That is so rich, so powerful. Now, I have to follow with one more verse because this is the strength of faith. We've studied 1 John, remember? How many weeks? Does anybody remember? I don't even remember. It was a lot. 20? 15. Seemed like a million for some of you. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4. You want to know the strength of faith? 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 says this, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world. What? Even our... I'm going to make you say it or we're not leaving. Faith. There we go. Even our faith. Even our faith. And I'm going to just close my notes because it just keeps distracting me. There's a lot of stuff in there. We're safe. You're safe. But that's what God's desire is for you. He wants you to enjoy all of the power and the energy that faith brings to you from Him. He's given you promises that you can literally just stand on. That, remember that? I think we, we did that song not that long ago. Standing on the promises. Standing on the promises. What a powerful thing that is. And when you're standing on promises, as Abram did, as Moses did, as Joseph did, as I, I, we could go right down through that line. And you know what? It's the same for you. When you're standing on the promises of God... It is powerful. It is truly, truly powerful. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your love, for your care, for your understanding of us. We know we're not perfect, but thank you for another promise that you gave to us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. that You are faithful to forgive us our sins when we confess them. Oh, how magnificent that is. To know that you care enough, that you loved us enough, that Jesus Christ accomplished enough for us to be safe. 
in your arms when we confess our sins. Father, we ask you to take us through this week to nourish us, to give us the required safety and provisions for us to accomplish what it is you want us to do. May our will become yours. May we get in line, and that's what prayer does. It sets us up. It allows us to see exactly what you want for us to be. Father, if we view prayer from an I should or I ought to, then we've missed the real significance of it. It's a relationship. It's a sense of wanting to talk to my Father. Wanting to talk to my Father. The line's always open. Never busy. Never out of order. Never a wrong number. Always available. My goodness. With the awesome, sovereign God of the universe that is, was, and always shall be. Promise that you said, I'm with you always. I'm with you always. Even in those moments we don't feel like it, Father, you're, you've promised. Father, thank you for what you'll accomplish as well. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can gain faith by seeking your word. Father, we just ask that we fall right into line of what it is that you would prefer for us to be. We thank you for what you're going to accomplish in Jesus' name. Amen. We have uh, first Sunday of the month, our time of communion, a time that takes us back to when Jesus Christ, the last, I'm going to say the last hours even, of which he was on earth with his disciples, they not knowing the significance of what was taking place, but he certainly did. He prepared for it. And as he gathered them in the upper room, as described for us, it was a time for him to reveal himself to them, maybe in a more relational way than they may have even seen him, because he shocked them that night. He shocked them. They were busy trying to think about kingdom things. It was obvious that they saw Jesus as being that one that was going to take Rome out, and they ultimately, he was the Messiah. They, and by the way, they called him right. He asked John, who do you say? I'm John. Or, I'm sorry, um, Peter. And Peter said, thou art the Christ. That means the Christos, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one that God had promised to come in the Old Testament. You, you're, you're him. And that meant this is the king. <laughs> we're we're, we're going to be in the cabinet of the king. Couldn't get any better. And that night, they're gathered around. You know, that, I don't, that doesn't portray it very well. That picture actually came from Benito. You know, my Mexican, he's been with me for 22 years. That was a present from his family to us. Isn't that beautiful? But I'm going to tell you, I'm going to take a little bit away from it. They did not sit at a table. They, were on the, they would have been on the floor, and they would have been in a reclined position on their, on their right elbow, and then they would have eaten. Okay. I might be wrong on the right elbow. It could be the left. I'm not sure. Okay. See, that make him a left-handed. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with that right now, but, but bear with me. Bear with, I can find out if we need to, but, but they would not be sitting at a table. And the really cool part is, is, no, the place of right, the place to the right of Jesus would have been the place of honor on that night, and he let that person be none other than the one that would betray him literally a few hours, Judas Iscariot. It just blows my mind. And he knew it. It wasn't like he was so, oh, I cannot believe this, Judas. No, he knew. He knew exactly. In fact, he told the disciples, he said, he who dips in the sop is the one. And they missed that. It went right by them. But the part that really, really, really 
surprised the disciples on that night was what Jesus did. And they called him the master. They called him the king. They called him the Messiah. They called him the Christos. They called him rabbi. They called him everything was in an elevated position. And they were wrestling and wrangling around. John, I'm going to be higher up in that cabinet than you are. Oh, John, forget it. I'm the man. Of, I'm not Peter, I'm the guy. I mean, I'm going to be... Re-. And this was going on. It was just this... All night long. And finally Jesus said... Didn't say anything, did he? That's what I love about Jesus. He got her done. As they would have come in there that night, there would have been a bowl and it had water in it. And normally there would have been a servant that would have been there in a home of which someone would have came in as a guest. And that servant, upon their coming, it would sit down and then they would kneel down and they would wash the feet of those coming in. Because obviously they didn't have uh, Wilson boots or <laughs> they had just a sandal and dusty roads, no pavement. Their feet would have been very dirty. But on that night, because they were in an upper room, they were by themselves. There was no one serving in that condition, in that position. And all of this rumbling is going on, right? And you can, it's a busy place. You can, can you, 12 guys? Right? Jesus quietly goes over and takes off his outer garment and begins washing their feet. Whoa. You could hear a pin drop. And Peter, of course, knowing him, he's the guy. He said, oh, no, you're not going to wash my feet. In other words, I'm, you, you shouldn't be washing my feet. You shouldn't be doing this. And Jesus said, well, then you'll have no part of me. Well, then wash everything. Right? He's just that guy over the top, no matter what. But that was something that really changed, I'm convinced, later on, as Mark would have described, that he is the chief, is the servant of all. Jesus was willing to lay it all aside to be the servant of mankind. He's the one that laid his life on the line. He's the one that took the cross to gain our freedom. That's powerful. And that was the first night I think they really started to see it. They started to see it. And that's what I'd like to do for these moments before us now as Laramie plays some soft music. It's a time as Paul, I'm going to ask that you would pass out the bread of which that night as he would disperse those elements and had the time there was for us as looking back we can see the significance of all that was accomplished. And he's asked us to do it as often as we will. But let's prepare our hearts just as for us to look within. And are we drifting? Are all of those things we talked about today, let's, let's take careful note of purifying and meeting our Savior on his terms. that night as he was serving his disciples in just a number of hours he would be literally sacrificing everything that he was, his life at the hands of those that he literally created he counted it a joy though to accomplish all that was was done and as they were taking that bread that night he blessed it. And Paul, I'm going to ask that you would say the blessing on the bread, please. <clears throat> our Lord and Master, we just again we are on our knees before you, acknowledging that you were, through your physical body, have taken 
blood of our sins and our guilt. Again, it's hard to imagine when you look upon us without blemish. It's hard for us to imagine. Only you can have done this. Father, we just thank you, Lord, again, as we bow our knees before you. On that night, it said, Jesus took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to the disciples. He said, take and eat, this is my body, let's partake together. Paul, I'll ask that you serve the cup, because he also, as he was sharing that that evening, there's many concerns, I'm sure, that were on his heart, things that were pressing. In fact, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane later that, that evening with what I would call his inner circle, and they fell asleep. And he went on beyond where they were asked to pray and went further, and he was in deep communion with his father. Deep communion, to the point of even literally sweating small droplets of blood. The earnestness, the anxiety. I, I, I fail to use, I'm not going to use that word. I'm going to use something but the, the, the persistence of of the, the job, the majesty of what was going to be accomplished. Literally, he was going to become the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And all of that heaviness that would have been imported on him is beyond what we can even imagine, and yet he took it. And as we think about that, as we contemplate the majesty of this all-God, all-man accomplishing everything that he did, we have nothing to do but give thanks to him and to our God. Let's just spend a few moments in that. short hours as Jesus would be hanging on the cross for what would seem like eternity to any of us at three o'clock in the afternoon he declared the last three words that he spoke in physical life it is finished the greatest three words that we could possibly even ever imagine the power of sin had been canceled. I should say the penalty of sin had been canceled. It looked like the worst situation imaginable to those disciples and his followers to see him, his lifeless body, on a cross. And yet, three days later, he would rise. He would appear to more than 500 at one time. His disciples, literally as a result of that, would give their lives in martyrdom because they knew it was true. That's the significance of that sacrifice. Him giving his life's blood is what we're commemorating now. I would ask, Ernie, would you say a blessing on the cup, please? Heavenly Father, thank you. We just want to take this in remembrance of what Jesus did for us shed his blood on the cross in our place. He did it for us. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I thank you for that. We take this in remembrance and thankfulness for what you've done for us. Thank you, Jesus. Name I pray. Amen.
It says also in Matthew that he took the cup and he gave thanks. He gave it to them and he said, Drink you all of it, for this is my blood and the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Let's partake together. Father God, again, you had planned this way of salvation. In Ephesians chapter 1, it tells us, Before the foundation of the world, before you spoke into existence the things that were nothing, and they became something, it was already in your wisdom to have had a plan that involved Jesus Christ, all God, all man, to sacrifice, to be the sacrifice for what we could not pay, to accomplish a glorious, eternal life, to be with you and our Savior forever. We thank you for that. We couldn't, we ever, we, we couldn't possibly thank you enough for it. Father, we're here to raise up, your, raise up your name and to glorify you, thanking you in Jesus' name. Amen.